Community Church exists to shine as light in our homes, in our community, and in our world. To contact us or for more information, see our website at wildwoodchurch.org. Well, if you would, please take out your Bibles now and turn in them in the New Testament to the Gospel of Matthew and chapter number 24. And if you don't have a Bible, there's one under a chair in front of you, and you can take that one and turn in the back part to page 20, and you would find yourself at Matthew chapter 24. You know, I've noticed over the years that people are frequently very quick to make predictions. And even among those who are gifted and highly trained, way too often those predictions prove to be dubious and unreliable. Let me just share a couple of them with you. Lord Kelvin, who was a British mathematician and physicist, he was president of the British Royal Society in 1895, he made this prediction. Heavier than air flying machines are impossible. That was eight years before Orville and Wilbur Wright took off into the history books from Kitty Hawk. Here's another Prediction from Alex Lewitt, who is president of Lewitt Vacuum Cleaner Company, and he was quoted in the New York Times in 1955 as saying this prediction. Nuclear-powered vacuum cleaners will be a reality in 10 years. Whoops, missed on that one. And then how about this Prediction, it came from the, uh, the leaders of DECA Records. I remember DECA Records. I still have 45s that are DECA label records at my house. And in 1962, DECA Records rejected the Beatles as a recording group with this quote, we don't like their sound and guitar music is on the way out. So I apologize to Greg for not keeping him informed uh, that he didn't understand that guitar music is on the way out. You know, while people's predictions are often very dubious and unreliable, God's are not. And God's prophetic proclamations are fulfilled with precise, stunning accuracy. We are in a short series of messages I have entitled Signs of the End Times. And we began it last week. And last week we looked at three Old Testament prophecies that were given 700 years before the events. And we saw that they were fulfilled in precise ways with stunning accuracy. Now we have this series entitled Signs of the End Times. So the question is, are there predictions related to the end times? Are there signs of the end of the age and the second coming? And the answer to that question is yes. So our plan for today has two parts to it. The first thing we're going to do is we're going to look at the core principle, the core principle. And then the second thing we're going to do is look at three particular signs of the end times. So that's all we're looking at today, the core principle, the foundational principle of the signs, and then three particular signs of the end times. So let's begin by laying the core principle. If you have your Bibles open to Matthew chapter 24, I want you to look at verse 3. 
interesting scene that Jesus was sitting on the Mount of Olives and the disciples came to him privately. Basically, they said, let's have a little private huddle. And they said to Jesus, tell us, when will these things happen? What will be the sign of your coming, the second coming, and the end of the age? What will be the sign of your coming again and the end of the age? Now, beginning with verse 4 and following, Jesus begins to share some of the signs. But what I want you to notice is, and we looked at this verse last time, verse 36 of chapter 24, Jesus says, of that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father alone. Somehow, in the economy of the way God was operating, Jesus was saying, I don't even know the exact day and hour, but there are signs. Let your eyes go down to verse 32. Jesus says, learn the parable from the fig tree. Some of the other gospels say from, you can learn from all of the trees. When its branch has already become tender and puts forth its leaves, you know that summer is near. In other words, Jesus was saying this. When you see trees beginning to bud, you know that summertime is coming. And so he goes on to say, so you too, when you see all these things, recognize that he is near right at the door. Now, here's the core principle. I don't have to tell you that we are a college football town. And uh, let's just assume that you have been told that there is going to be a really big game. It's a game between the University of Oklahoma and the University of Florida. But you are told you don't know what the day of the game is going to be, nor do you know the hour of kickoff. But if you said, listen, I don't want to miss the game, so what I'm going to do is I'm going to go sit at Owen Field. And then suddenly you see more fans begin to trickle into Owen Field. And then suddenly, you see these two teams, one dressed in Sooner Red and the other one in the away colors of the University of Florida, and they begin to come out and they start warming up. And then you see these gentlemen in striped shirts, the referees who begin to arrive, and then also there's this band, the Pride of Oklahoma, that comes out and begins to warm up on the field. And then you get to the point where eventually the teams go back into the locker room and then they come back out of the locker room and they're all jumping around, ready to go. And when you see all of that, even though you did not know the day or the hour of the game, you know what? You know that the kickoff is near. Kickoff is near. Well, that is the core principle that Jesus was communicating to the disciples now, there are many, 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 many predictions in the Word of God related to the second coming and the end of the age. Someone has calculated that there are 1,845 references to the second coming in the Old Testament alone. So we could spend a lot of time looking at all of these predictions, but what I want to do today, having laid that core 
foundational principle is I want to touch on three signs of the end of the age. And here are the three signs that we're going to look at. The first one is the return of Israel to their land. The second sign of the end times is the reemergence of the Roman Empire. And then the third sign of the end times is an active embracing of globalism. Now, at first glance, those may not seem significant to you, but I think as we unpack them, you'll see that they are powerfully significant. So the first sign of the end times we want to look at today is the return of Israel to their land. Now, before we look at that, I want you to to understand two important things. The first one is this, that God promised the land to Israel as an everlasting possession. Genesis 17, verses 7 and 8 emphasize that. It says there, God speaking to Abraham He says, I will establish my covenant between me and you and your descendants after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant. I will give to you all the land of Canaan for an everlasting possession. Now, enjoying the blessings of the land was conditioned on the nation's faithfulness. But God promised the land to Israel as an everlasting possession. So that's the first thing I want you to notice as we look at this first sign. Second thing that it's important that we understand is that Israel is pictured as being in the land of Israel at the end of the age and at the second coming. Over and over again, Israel is pictured as being in the land at the end of the age and the second coming. Now, what I want you to do is turn a few books to the left in your Bible to the book of Zechariah. And in particular, we need to understand in Zechariah chapter 12, chapter 13, and chapter 14, this comes out that at the time of the second coming, Israel is pictured as being in the land. Look at Zechariah chapter 12 and verse 8. It says there that in that day, the Lord will defend the inhabitants of Jerusalem. Verse 9, in that day, I will set about to destroy all the nations that come against Jerusalem. See, Israel is being pictured as being in the land and in possession of the city of Jerusalem at the time of the second coming of Jesus Christ. Go over to chapter 14, and we'll look at the first four verses. You can follow along as I'm looking at them. Verse 1 says, Behold, a day is coming for the Lord when the spoil taken from you will be divided among you. For I will, notice this, I will gather all the nations against Jerusalem to battle. And the city will be captured and the houses plundered and the women ravished and half the city exiled, but the rest of the people will not be cut off from the city. Then, verse 3, the Lord will go forth and fight against those nations as when he fights on a day of battle. And notice verse 4, in that day, his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives, which is front in front of Jerusalem on the east, 
and the Mount of Olives will be split from the middle, from east to west, by a very large valley, so that half of the mountain will move to the north, and the other half will move to the south. See, very clearly, Israel is pictured as being in the land at the end of the age and at the second coming. So what that means is that the return of Israel to the land is highly significant. Now, if you are younger, that does not seem very remarkable to you because all of your life, Israel has been in the land and has had control of the city of Jerusalem. But this is why history is so important. So what we want to do is freeze frame for a moment and zoom back and look at a little bit of history. Israel and their relationship to the land tracks back to 722 B.C. when the Assyrians came in to Israel and they took 10 of the 12 tribes and scattered them throughout the entire world. And then in 586 B.C., the Babylonians came in and they took the two remaining tribes and scattered them around. Now, later, some of those two tribes returned. Remember, we we saw some of the predictions, the decrees of Jews returning to the land, and some of them did return. But from that point on, Israel was always under foreign control. From 586 B.C. on, even though some of the two tribes came back, it was always under foreign control. And then, if you know your history, you know that in 70 A.D., the Romans came in and totally destroyed Israel, destroyed the temple, and scattered the remaining Jews everywhere into the world. And there was no nation of Israel for 19 centuries. That's amazing to think about. 19 centuries, there was no nation of Israel. But you guess what? God said, I have a plan for Israel. Turn a number of uh, books back in the left of your Bible to the book of Ezekiel. God made a prophecy, a prediction, and he said, guess what? I am going to bring you back into the land. I'm going to bring you back into the land. Look at Ezekiel 34, verse 13. This is God speaking, and he says, I will bring them out from the peoples and gather them from the countries and bring them to their own land. And over and over again, we have this prediction in the book of Ezekiel. Look at chapter 36 of Ezekiel and verse 24. God says, I will take you from the nations and gather you from all the lands and bring you into your own land. And then look at Ezekiel 36 and verse 21. Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I will take the sons of Israel from among the nations where they have gone, and I will gather them from every side and bring them into their own land. God said, 19 centuries without there being a country, but he said, I'm going to bring them back. I'm going to bring them back. And there was absolutely no evidence of that 
until 1871, which, by the way, was the time of my great-grandfather. For the very first time in 1871, a few Jews returned to the land of Israel. A decade later, in 1881, there were 25,000 Jews there. In 1914, there were 80,000 Jews in the land of Israel. In 1939, before the launch of World War II, there were 450,000 Jews in the land of Israel. And you know the history of what happened, of course, in World War II, where Hitler had a plan to annihilate the Jewish race. And what happened coming out of the end of World War II in, in 1945 was an incredible worldwide empathy for the Jews. And three years after the end of World War II, in 1948, the United Nations approved Israel to be a nation again. You are now a nation, Israel. When that happened in 1948, there were 650,000 Jews in Israel. Now, here's what's so amazing about that. That was the first time that Israel had sovereign control of her land in 2005 years. For 25 centuries, they did not have sovereign control over their land. By the way, this return of the Jews from dispersion in the world is totally unique in world history. Totally unique. There has never been a people that was ever a people group that were ever dispersed into more than 70 nations over 19 centuries that did not evaporate as an identifiable people group or become assimilated into the various cultures which they went. In fact, this is the only nation that I am aware of that has ever revived their language historically. Randall Price, who's a guy that I went to seminary with, who's in my seminary class at Dallas Theological Seminary, has written this. He says, in the late 19th century, that's the late 1800s, when the Jews began immigration to the land, that's in that time of my great-grandfather, Jews only spoke the languages of the countries from which they had returned. They'd been in all these various countries and cultures. But one man, Eliezer ben Yehuda decided that the, the proper language for a Jewish people who would now be back in the land of the prophets was the very language of the prophets, which was Hebrew. So Eliezer ben Yehuda began teaching the children, and today Hebrew is spoken daily by every man, woman, and child in the nation of Israel. By contrast, what country or people group today speak Assyrian? or speak Latin. You see, only the Jewish people have successfully regained the use of their original language in everyday life. God said, I'm going to bring them back. And today, there are 5.4 million Jews in Israel, the largest concentration of Jewish people 
in all of the world, and it's the very first time since 70 AD that that has been true. And when you see the signs, you know kickoff is near. Milton Lindbergh has said this. He says, without the existence of the nation of Israel, we would not be able to say with any certainty that we are in the last days. That single event more than any other is the most prominent sign that we're living in the final moments before the coming of Jesus. The Hebrew people have been called God's timepiece of the ages. It really is an amazing story. Do you know that the Scriptures tell us in all these prophetic statements that the center focus of all the end times events are going to be around the nation of Israel. It is a nation the size of New Jersey. It's only nine miles wide. Why would such a nation become the center of the focus of all the events of the end times? Because God said that it would. That's why. So the first sign of the end times, men and women, is the return of Israel to their land. But there is a second sign I want to look at of the end times, and that is the reemergence of the Roman Empire. This is a fascinating one. This is predicted in the Old Testament, in particular in the book of Daniel in chapter 2 and Daniel chapter 7. And by the way, we do not have time for me to do an exposition in detail of Daniel 2 and Daniel 7. Just to kind of give you a little orientation, what happens in Daniel 2 is that God gives Daniel, a vision. It's a vision of this statue. And it's a statue that has a head of gold and it has a chest and arms of silver. It has belly and thighs of brass and it has legs of iron. And then in Daniel 7, there's this vision that shows there to be four beasts. What are these visions about? Well, in Daniel chapter 2, verse 39, it tells us, these are the kingdoms which will rule over all of the earth. These are two visions of the four world empires who would rule the entire earth. And I have a chart for you here, just to kind of summarize all of this into, into one chart. You have the, the world empires, the four world empires, Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, and Rome. And then you have uh, Daniel 2 and, and Daniel 7 with their unique visions. With Babylon and Daniel chapter 2 of the statue is the head of gold, stands for Babylon. And Daniel 7, it's the, the lion. The second world empire is Medo-Persia. That is the chest and arms of silver in Daniel 2 and the bear in Daniel 7. The third world empire would be the empire of Greece, symbolized in Daniel 2 by the belly and thighs of brass and by the leopard in Daniel 7. And then the fourth world empire would be Rome, historical Rome, symbolized in Daniel 2 by the legs of iron. You know, Rome was divided into two, the Eastern Empire and the Western Empire, and then symbolized by the terrible beast in Daniel chapter 7. But what's interesting about this is there appears to be 
a second phase to the Roman Empire, what we might call Rome future, symbolized in Daniel 2 by the ten toes and in Daniel 7 by the ten horns, some future form of the Roman Empire. Ten toes, ten horns. We learn from Daniel chapter 7, verse 24, that the ten horns are ten kings or ten nations or ten leaders. But here's what's interesting. Jot this verse down, Daniel 2, 44, because it says there this, in the days of those kings, those ten toes, those ten horns, in the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that will never be destroyed. What's really interesting is if you look back on the history of the Roman Empire, there was never a a ten-king form of the Roman Empire, a ten-nation form, or a ten-leader form. Never was. But what's also interesting is that in Daniel 2, verses 34 and 35, what happens to the statue is that this stone comes from heaven, if you go back and you look at it, and it comes flying down and it hits the statue right in the ten toes. It just suddenly blows the whole statue up, destroys the statue. And then this stone, which has come down from heaven, becomes a mountain that fills the entire earth. And that stone, which fills the entire earth, is a picture of the coming of God's kingdom. And it comes down and it just smashes the statue on the toes, suddenly destroying it. One thing we know about the Roman Empire of the past, historical Rome, is it didn't get suddenly destroyed at all. In fact, it very slowly declined over centuries. Even the Roman Empire in Jesus' day, the western part didn't really fizzle out till 476 A.D., and the eastern part of the Roman Empire didn't fizzle out till 1453 A.D. Now, here's what is interesting to me. Prophecy teachers and scholars in the early 1900s studying things in passages like Daniel chapter 2 and Daniel chapter 7, made a prediction. They said that there would be one day a unified Europe. Europe was the core of the Roman Empire. They would say there would be a unified Europe in the end times. Now, if you know your history of Europe, you know how astonishing that statement was in the early 1900s. What? Unified Europe in the end times? See, that was my parents' generation. If you know your European history, you know that the nations of Europe for centuries have hated one another. They've been at war with one another. Look at the core of World War I. The nations of Europe at each other's throat. The core of World War II, the nations of Europe at one another's throat. That's just been the way the history has been. But something very interesting happened one year after the end of World War II. In 1946, Winston Churchill, who maybe was the greatest leader in Europe, said, you know what? I think it's time we do things differently. Rather than going to war with one another, he said, we must build a United States of Europe. 
About a decade later, 1957, six European nations came together and formed what is called the EEC, the European Economic Community. Eventually, by 1992, that grew into the European Economic Union. And if you know your history, what has followed has been a European parliament, a European court system, a European flag, a European currency. And for about the last five to six years, they've been talking about developing a full-scale European military force. What you may have missed is that on December the 1st of 2009, the European Council appointed their first president, who is commonly called the president of Europe. That very first president is a man by the name of Herman Van Rompuy. It's a real person. By the way, he did not become, as they call it commonly, the president of Europe by election from the people of Europe. He became the common title of president of Europe by appointment. What an amazing gear shift. And see, what makes it all fascinating is that the Bible tells us that this Antichrist who is to come will be the ruler of this Roman Empire, phase two. Now, in order to emphasize how amazing this is, I want to show you a slide, and it was, it was hard for me to put this together, but it shows you there's two halves to the slide. And on the right hand of it, even though the oceans aren't colored in as well as they are on the other side, in more of the red, you have the Roman Empire, the footprint of the Roman Empire. Now, I want you to look to the other side, which is in the blue, and you have the footprint of the European Union. And I want you to see how startling they are. Now, you'll see that in the original Roman Empire, there's some red down there in, the, in parts of North Africa. But other than that, that is amazing to see. Totally amazing to see. In Europe, the European Union today is the world's largest economy. Now, remember the ten toes, the ten horns, what we said were like ten kings or ten leaders or ten nations? Where, where does the ten fit into all of this? Well, I want you to know that I've been watching this for multiple decades I've been watching this, knowing what the Bible said about this, since there was originally six of them, and I remember saying, you know what, they're going to add four, and you're going to be at ten. Most people say, well, the, the ten kings are, are, are ten nations. Well, in 1973, they added three. Okay, now we're at nine. 1981, they added one. Now we're at ten. I thought, there we go. In 1986, they added two more. They went to twelve. 1995, they added three more. They went to 15. 2004, they added 10. Now they're at 25. And in 2007, they added two more. They were at 27. So what's going on? What's with the 10 thing? I really don't know. 
I just know that this all remains very fluid. And it's interesting that we even have leaders being appointed. I don't know what's going to happen. I don't know whether this is going to, this, this council, this elite council, is it going to morph into some form where there are 10 leaders of the elite council of Europe? I don't know. But this is what blows my mind. In my lifetime, we have seen the emergence of Israel as a nation. In my lifetime, we have seen a reunited Europe come together. And all of this is rolling, men and women, full speed ahead. And when you see the signs you know that kickoff is near. Now, there's a third sign of the end times I want to look at, and that is an active embracing of globalism. What do I mean by that? Well, I mean a one-world mentality. I mean a one-world atmosphere. And again, if you understand human history, you'll know that throughout all of most of human history, the total opposite has been what has pre- prevailed. It's the total opposite of globalism or a one-world mentality. That's been the, the thing. Most all of human history has been like that. You have all these individual countries, and everyone's got their own culture, and they're thinking their own way. But what the Bible says is that the Antichrist will become a world ruler before Jesus returns. In fact, in the book of the Revelation, chapter 13, verses 7 and 8, it says that the Antichrist would be given authority over every people, every language, every nation, and that all of them will worship him. In fact, we learn from Revelation chapter 13, verse 17, that the Antichrist is going to control all buying and selling in the entire world. Now, there's a lot of implication in that. That implies that there must be a single connected economic system in order for someone to control all of that in the whole world. Plus, the implication is that there's going to be a one-world government because he becomes the ruler of the whole world. Now, again, this is fascinating to me because within my lifetime, within my lifetime, I have watched how the world's economies have become intertwined. You know, there's a lot of uh, organizational groups out there that you've heard of. You've heard of the G8 the top eight economies of the world come together to set economic policy. You've heard of the G20, the 19 largest economies of the world plus the European Union who come together to set policies and economic principles. You've heard of things like the World Bank. You've heard of things like the IMF, the International Monetary Fund. And all of this stuff is working to do what? To set up a global economic framework, and the liberal intelligentsia of our nation is pushing us in that direction, pushing for global education in schools, which sounds good, but until you see really what's behind it, 
Dr. Pierce of Harvard University. Now, this is a guy from Harvard University. It's not some guy from some podunk school up in Montana. Harvard University, he's speaking to educators in Denver. This is what he says. This is amazing to me. He says, every child in America who enters schools at the age of five is mentally ill. They're mentally ill because he comes to school, listen to this, with an allegiance towards our elected officials. We don't want that. He comes to school with an allegiance towards our finding, founding fathers. He comes with an allegiance towards our institutions, towards the preservation of this form of government. We can't stand for that because it's all globalism. It's thinking one world mentality, a one world atmosphere. It was in April of 2009 that the Russian president, Dmitry Medvedev, at a G8 conference, stood up and said, you know what we need? We need a supranational currency. We need one currency for the whole world. We don't need all these other currencies. Isn't that an amazing statement that someone would make? That's what we're coming down to now? Let's just have one currency for the whole world, which would be relatively easy to control. Now, again, I understand a lot of us don't like history very much, but it's so critical to understand history. Someone once said that the one thing we learn from history is that man learns nothing from history. shouldn't be that way. You know that the global mindset, now think about this for a moment, the global mindset that we see today is the strongest global mindset that has existed in the world since the Tower of Babel back in the book of Genesis. The Tower of Babel happened about 2000 B.C., So, in 4,000 plus years, this is the strongest globalistic thinking that there has ever been. See, when the stage is set, when the players begin to get into position and the band starts to play Oklahoma, you know the kickoff is near. Now, those are three signs of the end times. Lord willing, we'll look at more next time. But what I want us to do now is to think about some life response as we walk away from what we've looked at today. And I'm going to suggest three responses for us. The response of remember, the response of avoid, and the response of evaluate. So this is where we get practical, okay? This is what you want to write down. The first life response I believe that we can have as we've looked at these three signs of the end times is to remember that God is sovereign. God is large and he is in charge. And he has a plan, a plan that he has delivered very precise predictions about that has existed not only before you were born or I was born, but before the foundation of the world. He has had a plan. And because he is sovereign, he can be trusted. We don't need to be nervous in the service. He is in control and he can be trusted. Second life response 
is that we need to avoid extremes. This is what people often fail to do. And I want to talk about two extremes. One extreme is what I like to call the life-as-usual approach. This is where basically your attitude is, ho-hum, you know, we're just going to go on. Everything in life is going to happen. It's just going to go on forever. Nothing that the Bible predicted would happen would ever happen in my lifetime. Why do I not need to worry about it? I'll just continue to do everything as usual. Listen, men and women. Jesus Christ is coming back. And when he comes back, He's coming back as the lion of the tribe of Judah who is going to judge this world, and he will do it ferociously so. There's not a time for, ah, just everything's going to keep going just the way it has. Not a life-as-usual approach, or the other extreme would be what I call the panic and withdraw from people approach. This is where, oh my gosh, all kinds of things are going to start to happen. We need to go into survival mode. We all need to move somewhere out in the country. We need to start building all this stuff up and everything. No, 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 no. We are still called to be salt and light in this planet. That's why we are here. And the people of this world need us as we share the light Then the third life response is to evaluate our priorities, to evaluate our priorities. You know, we talked last time about the followers of Harold Camping, and some of us might have been thinking, you know what, I kind of like to mock those people for some of the things that they did, or maybe you just feel pity on them. But you know what's interesting about them? Those folks were willing to sacrifice their time, their talent, and their treasure to share the message of the end of the age and the return of Jesus Christ. They allowed the truth that they understood, even though I think it was way off kilter, they allowed that truth to impact how they chose to live their life. And I think we need to ask ourselves the question, how am I investing my time, talent, and treasure for the kingdom of God? How are you investing your time and talent and treasure for Christ's kingdom? Because you see, He's coming back. He's coming back. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for the word. We thank you for the reminder, the perspective that we need. We thank you that we can have our minds realigned by your truth because we desperately need it. And we would pray, Father, that we wouldn't just look at this stuff and be the same man or woman or young person as we were before. We pray that you'll use us to touch the world around us, And may we evaluate our priorities in light of what the Word of God teaches us. And may we always give you the praise. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.